Well, good morning. I'm, I'm glad you're all here. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. <clears throat> uh, we seem to know, as you're turning to Mark chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 38 to 41. Um, we, we all know that unity is to be preferred above disunity. We know that, right? That seems to be an obvious one. Unity is a good thing. Disunity is a bad thing. Togetherness, good. Segregation, bad. Uh, a united marriage is preferable to a, a divisive or disunited marriage. A united family, preferable to one that's dysfunctional and divided. A united church to a splitting church. A united country is preferable to a divided country. As Jesus himself said, and then later Abraham Lincoln said, that uh, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Division is something that is often uh, avoided. We run from that. We, we don't like it. And division, and rightly so, is not as uh, valued as unity is. We, we want unity, right? And yet... Think about that a little further. We also come to understand that there are times that we got to separate. There are times, there are right times in our lives, in our Christian walks, where to separate from others is actually called to. We tell our kids that they should not hang out with the wrong crowd. Uh, We don't want to get caught up into immoral business partnerships, things like that. And the church doesn't want to get and should avoid being caught up in error in partnering with things that would dishonor God. And so as we come to scriptures, we kind of understand that if, if you look, there are all kinds of passages that emphasize the need for unity. And there are also all kinds of passages that emphasize the need for purity and separation from the things of the world. I wonder which way you tend to lean. Because we all are maybe inclined in a certain direction. Uh, those of us uh, here who value unity. We want to fight for unity. You want to fight for togetherness. This is a good inclination. John 17, you know very well that Jesus prayed that His people would be one just as Jesus was one with the Father. Uh, you know what Paul said in the letter to the Corinthians. He, he wrote, all of you should agree and that there should be no divisions among you and that you would be united in the same mind and have the same judgment. You understand what Paul wrote to the Ephesians, that there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, one God, one Father over all, through all, and in all. And so you value unity. You fight for unity. You want to make sure that you're united with with other Christians. And and praise the Lord for that. You should have that inclination. We should be inclined to, to do that. And there are also those of us here who we're ready to uh, to separate. We, we, we want purity of truth. This is also a good inclination. We want to make sure that we're accurate, that our doctrine is sound. We take very seriously Jesus' warning about the leaven of the Pharisees, that subtle influence of the world that can creep in to the way we think and the way we feel and the way we treat others. We understand that Romans 12 calls us to watch out for the, the ways of the world, that we're not conformed by them, that we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so we understand that there are areas in our lives that we need to be watchful about who's influencing us. And sometimes that means, again, we separate. First John 4, test the spirits. And make sure that they're from God. Second Corinthians, or sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Or Jude chapter, or or verse 3, that we are called as Christians to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So there is, all throughout Scripture, this idea that there is a contention for the faith. There's a protection of doctrine that needs to be happening. There's even a call to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, to let the world and the thinking of the world and philosophies of the world to creep into our minds and our thinking. And so there's a right inclination at times to separate. Here's where it gets sticky is, when do you do which one? Like When do you fight for unity and... Hope for the best that, that, that we can all unite together, but do so in a way that doesn't compromise truth. And how can we fight for truth? Those of us who want to fight for the purity of the church, how do we do so without being unnecessarily separating from people we should not separate from to fight for the unity that God wants us to have? I, I think these are really important things to, de- to be thinking about. We want to be a church that is doctrinally sound. We want to be a church, as, as the Bible teaches, that's pure. Not only in the way we think, in the doctrines we believe, but in the things we tolerate in our own lives, that we are living pure lives. And yet we also want to be loving and united and generous. And sometimes, doesn't it feel like it's like you've got to choose? Sometimes it feels like you either got to be the, the love person or the truth person. It's like you got to make this decision. I'm not going to fight for unity. And if I fight for unity, I can't really care much about the truth. Or I'm going to care about the truth. And if I love the truth, well, I can't really fight for unity. So how do we think this, through this stuff? You all got to make these decisions at different points uh, with who you're going to partner with in your life and your business and your family. And then churches corporately, we got to think about how we do, how we do this stuff. Who are the other churches and what are the types of ministries we can get behind and affirm and pray for? And what are those ministries that we kind of go, yeah, no, we, we can't really get behind that. Uh, th- there's too much compromise there that we really don't feel good about affirming those ministries. So we're going to encounter, and here's our, our text. We're in, we're in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41, and there's a particular um, uh, event that happens with these disciples where Jesus teaches his disciples a way to navigate these kind of questions. Uh, to What kind of ministry should they affirm? And what kind of ministry should they not affirm? And this is all right here in the text. And I think it'll be a good opportunity for us to think through this corporately as a church. So look at your Bibles in chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 38 to 41. This is after they've been kind of arguing about the, you know, the whole issue of who's the greatest. So they're not exactly, um, you know, they're, what, what happens here in this section is sometimes associated in terms of its theme with the previous section. This is all kind of happening. So it is still in this context of Jesus is having to teach these disciples humility. So verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink 
because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Interesting little scenario there. Very short, very brief, little interaction here. John speaks up. It's really the first time uh, in Mark that John alone is singled out. Actually, Luke and Matthew, for that matter, don't have John ever speaking in isolation. Well, here's a unique moment where John speaks up. He's maybe talking on behalf of the 12. It seems that way. And he says to Jesus, calling Jesus teacher, hey, we saw someone. It doesn't name a name. It doesn't say that they knew him very well. It doesn't indicate any kind of relationship. All it says, we saw this guy, this someone, casting out demons in your name. And they thought that the right thing to do in this situation was to stop this guy. Okay, this is a ministry we cannot affirm. This is a ministry we got to put an end to. We got to stop this guy. And we are going to go tell him that he should no longer be doing this. And the reason there at the end of the statement that John gives is because he's not following us. Okay? Now, this is a quick note on what's going on here. Demonic activity. You've noticed if you've been with us that demonic activity keeps coming up in the Gospel of Mark. Read the Gospels. There's a lot of demons. Um, demonic activity is still happening today. Don't get so secular and materialistic that you forget the reality that there is a spirit realm that does exist. Demons do exist. Demons are at work. Demons are at work against us Christians, against the truth. Those are real. But it does seem that during the life of Christ, they were extra active, almost as if an alarm went off in hell and these demons, you know, at the incarnation are all swarming up to try to put a stop or a hindrance in the in the way of Jesus doing his ministry. So there's demons all over the place when you read through the Gospels. And in this case, this guy is demonstrating authority and power over this, these demons, this, this unnamed individual, not part of the Twelve, probably, though, part of the crowd. You remember, if you've read through Mark, you've seen that there's this crowd that keeps following Jesus nearly everywhere he goes. There's a crowd. So it's probably someone in, that's been in the crowd that is beginning to demonstrate power. It says there in verse 38 that he's doing this in your name. That's what John says. This guy's casting out demons in your name, Jesus. So, so there's a recogn- this guy just isn't doing some you know, magician type things or some tricks. He's actually calling upon the name of Jesus, operating under the power of Jesus, and he's doing this. I think what it means is he's doing it in, the, in faith, Uh, of jesus christ he's doing it in the authority of jesus christ he's doing it with the power of jesus christ and he's actually being effective this guy's casting out demons the 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 disciples all recognize that it's working the guy's actually doing this so here's what we get just kind of a picture of a a a man doing legitimate ministry effective ministry he's not associated with the twelve But he's doing ministry in Jesus' name, by Jesus' power. Jesus will affirm him in the following verses. And the disciples who see it don't think that he should keep doing it. So that's our scenario, just so you get the idea of what kind of picture we're looking at. Legitimate ministry happening. People are being actually helped from the demonic influence. And the twelve say, nah, not on our watch. We're going to put an end to you doing this ministry. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a, uh, it's going to be a little bit of a herky-jerky outline here, but hopefully you'll be able to follow along. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Here's our outline. Number one, three bad reasons to separate from another ministry. 
Number two, three marks of a ministry we should affirm. And number three, two reasons to affirm those kinds of ministries. You see what I did there? I, I smuggled in eight points into three. <laughs> three reasons to separate, three marks of a ministry we should affirm, and two reasons why we should affirm. And in studying this, we're also going to kind of understand here are the ministries we should not associate with. Um, so let's start with the three bad reasons. Here's three bad reasons we should separate from other Christians, other ministries, or other churches. Bad reason number one is this. It's unfamiliar. It's unfamiliar. The disciples did not know this man. They did not name this man. They called him a someone. Um, and he was not following them. This is at the end of verse 38. He's not following us. And what it seems like what's happening here is the disciples made a quick judgment call that because they did not know him, because he was unfamiliar, they felt that they could not affirm him. And so their initial response to the ministry of this man, though it was effective, though it was in the name of Jesus, was to disassociate and to discredit that ministry. This ministry is illegitimate, they say. This ministry should be stopped, they, th they think. And so they put an end to it, really, so... Uh, because they're, they're not familiar. They don't really know what's going on. They don't really understand the situation. It is a bad reason to uh, disassociate from a Christian, from another ministry, from a church, simply because you do not know them. It's a bad posture to take as a Christian to be automatically suspicious of every other Christian you don't know, to be automatically suspicious of every church you've never been to, to be automatically suspicious of every ministry that exists in the name of Christ. We are not naive, and we're going to get into that in a second, but the posture of suspicion is not a good posture to have. Jesus, I think, tells them, hey, don't just automatically assume. There will be more uh, questions to ask, but don't stop them immediately just simply because you don't know him. Turns out they shouldn't have stopped him. They shouldn't have even tried. Here's a second bad reason to separate from another Christian or church or ministry. Second bad reason is because you're jealous. Uh, I'm jealous is a bad reason to stand in the way of another person's ministry. Or you say, where do you get that from the text? Most commentators point out the order of events taking place in Mark, and they point out, do you remember just a couple weeks ago, what the disciples failed to do? Do you remember? There's a boy who's had a demon, and the father comes, and he's saying, hey, what can you do about my boy? He's, He's got this demon, and the demon takes him over and causes him to seizure, and he foams at the mouth, and he slams him to the ground. And remember, the disciples tried to cast him out, and did they succeed? No, they failed. They couldn't do it until Jesus comes down the mountain of transfiguration, and they tell him, hey, no, it's not working, and Jesus has to do it. And then he says, hey, this kind cannot be driven out by anything except prayer. Uh, so, so here are the disciples kind of humbled, hopefully they're humbled, by trying to do ministry to this poor boy that's possessed by a demon, and they fail so dramatically, and they move on to this next situation, and all of a sudden there's another man casting out demons, except he's doing it successfully. And I wonder if, and most people believe that this is why, this is in the order of Mark the way it is, it's flowing straight off of their arguing about who's the greatest. It seems that there's some jealousy in their hearts. And now here they are trying to stop a guy for doing something that they failed to do. It's like, here's their ministry. It's succeeding. But ours failed. So let's just stop that. Maybe they are doing it wrong. 
Maybe if they were like us and more faithful, uh, they would be failing as well. I don't know what they're thinking. But clearly they're jealous. There's some sort of thing going on where they just want to put an end to this guy because he succeeded where they failed. Imagine this, just to put yourself in their shoes. Imagine you, uh, you want to do some work for the Lord. You want to do a Bible study, let's say. So you start recruiting uh, people to join you in your Bible study on the opening night of your Bible study. No one really shows up. You get a few people come, and you start your Bible study, and it starts with kind of this, you know, not very excited. A few weeks go by, and then on your Thursday night Bible studies, no one shows up. It's just no one, like it just fizzles out, and no one's coming anymore, and you're a little bit discouraged. And then your friend, your fellow church member says, I'm going to start a Thursday night Bible study. I want to get some people around. We're going we're gonna to study the Bible. And, and the first night, everyone shows up. There's hardly enough room in the living room. And they keep going. In fact, it's like growing every week. There's more people showing up. And you're sitting at your house on Thursday nights looking across the street going, what's going on? It would be easy in our pride to start thinking of reasons why that should not happen. Uh, to, to make ourselves feel better about our own lack of success or lack of fruit, we might start conjuring up reasons to discredit them. Isn't that crazy how the human heart works and the pride that we have, that when we see other people succeeding, we sometimes try to figure out reasons why we should not celebrate that? We might start making excuses for ourselves or why we didn't have the same fruit they did. Seems like that's what's going on here with the disciples. We tried to stop them because he was succeeding while we were failing. And so they have to make up some sort of reason why they cannot celebrate the ministry that this man has. Listen, friends, there will be other Christians who succeed where you fail. There will be other Christians who are fruitful where you are not. Can you rejoice in that? Can you look at them and celebrate their success and their fruitfulness? There will be churches that are more fruitful than us. There will be ministers who see more people saved than we ever see in our whole life. Can you rejoice with them? Or do you stand back and look with a suspicious eye at anyone who has more fruit? It might turn out that if we ask ourselves these these questions, that we might realize that we weren't actually doing ministry for the glory of God, but for the glory of ourselves. We wanted the credit. We wanted to see our own names lifted high so people would recognize us. It's a bad reason to separate from someone or to put someone down or put someone else's ministry down simply because they have succeeded where you have failed or they have borne fruit where you did not. And you maybe start feeling a little jealous and you want to think about a reason to why you shouldn't affirm them. Let's not be that way. Let me encourage you. If you see someone else doing good ministry, a brother, sister, particularly if they're a family member, you know, part of the church, can you affirm them, celebrate with them, encourage them, value what they're doing, even if you have tried similar things and haven't seen the same response? Here's a third bad reason to separate. Uh, the, the third bad reason we find at the end of verse 38, 38 when, when the, John says, because he was not following us. See, the third bad reason to separate is we have this belief that we're the only faithful ones left. We're the only ones God is working through. We're the only ones. See, if you go back to Mark 6, 
Jesus had actually singled out these 12 men and he gave them a unique authority over demons and he sent them out to go do ministry. And they went out and they cast out demons and they preached the gospel and they did all this mighty work and Jesus gave them specific directions. And probably what began to happen was that these disciples thought that they were the only ones that would get the special call from God to go do the work of God. So they were all excited about this privilege. They're, we're the only ones that God will work through. Maybe they thought we're the only faithful ones that God is going to use. We're the last ones standing. Everyone else is lost. No one else gets it. God has chosen us because we're special or whatever. It's funny. <clears throat> it's funny how often this way of thinking actually occurs, not only in the Bible, but in church history. That churches can begin to think that the only ones faithful, the only ones left, the only ones preaching a true gospel, the only healthy church in the whole community is here at Grace Rancho. This is not true. <clears throat> in Numbers 11, <laughs> in Numbers 11, we get this account of, of two men. Uh, one's named Eldad and one's named Medad. And they begin prophesying in the camp of Israel. Remember the story? And uh, there's a young man that sees these, these prophets and the, the young man runs up, runs up to Moses. He says, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, who is the assistant of Moses from his youth, it says, he goes up to Moses, and Joshua says, my Lord, Moses, stop them. You know, thinking they're doing a very noble deed to put an end to these prophets speaking God's truth to all these people. What does Moses, Moses say? Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets? that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. You see, these two people prophesying, that's not the problem. I wish more people did. You see, these people, these friends who are very loyal to Moses, begin to think that Moses is the only one that God is going to use. And Moses is sitting here going, I wish more people were prophesying. Elijah, remember him? I'm the only one here that's remained faithful to you, God. Throwing a little pity party for himself. And God has to remind him there's 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. You're not the only one. You know there are many others that are remaining faithful as well. They're doing the work of God. You're not the only one. And it's a sad and tragic thing, kind of a pathetic thing, a very small-minded thing to think that we're the only church or our group is the only group that's being faithful to God. It's just simply not true. It's not how God works. There are men, there's a faithful remnant, and that remnant's scattered all over the place. You know, I happen to think Grace Ranch is a healthy church. And man, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the health that God has given us. I happen to think that. I'm thankful for that. I also think that Grace Rancho is not the only healthy church. I think there are lots of healthy churches. I commend and I celebrate. We should all commend and celebrate other healthy churches that are preaching the gospel, that are glorifying God. And we'll get into how do we identify those people. But we should be able to affirm that God is at work in other places, in other churches, in other Christians that we don't know, that we've never fellowshiped in. That is what God is doing. His kingdom of God is not right here under this tent. Okay? God is at work in places all around the globe, and we should be thankful. God is at work in other churches in Rancho Cucamonga, and we should be thankful. They said, he's not following us. You know, that's the reason we should stop him. I mean, that's the reason that, that John gave. The reason we're stopping him is because he's not with us, and we're the faithful ones. And so Jesus says, no, don't stop him. Don't stop him. That's the, that's the command. That's the imperative that's given here in the text. 
that Jesus says, don't stop him. Okay? And here's where we get to our second point, <clears throat> which is going to be three points. Three marks of a ministry we should affirm. It really is one point with three subpoints to make it clear. Okay? It really is one point. Because look at the reason that Jesus gives for not stopping this guy. He says, do not stop him. Look at this. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Okay, what is he saying? I think when Jesus is using that phrase, in my name, he is affirming that this man is doing the work by Christ's power, with Christ's authority, by faith in Christ, that this is a ministry that is done for Christ and through Christ. Okay? He's not an imposter. He's not a false teacher. He's doing the work legitimately, and Jesus is affirming that he's doing the work legitimately in his name. And he says that after he does this, he's not going to be able to soon speak evil of him. In other words, after he does the ministry in Jesus' name, according to Jesus' power, the opposite will occur, that he will see the power of God on display, and he will be able to speak glorious things of his Savior. You know, look at what my Savior has done. Look at what the Lord has done here to deliver these people from their demonic oppression. He's, he's indicating that this guy is not on the other team. If he will do mighty works in my name, he's not going to go around and speak bad of me later. He's on our team. He's on our side. He, he's with us. He's working for Christ, for his glory. He's doing it in his name, and he's actually being effective to do the work of Christ on behalf of Christ And therefore, Jesus is affirming that his ministry in my name honors me. It exalts me. He is not against this person. He is for this person. And he wants his disciples to be for him. Why? Because the ultimate test of this man's ministry is what? Does it honor Christ? That's the question. Does it exalt Christ? Is it done for Christ? Christ is it done in his power in his authority in such a way that Christ gets the credit that is the fundamental listen that is the fundamental mark of a ministry we should affirm is this does it honor Jesus Christ does it exalt Jesus Christ does it glorify Jesus Christ now you might pause if you're a discerning fellow If you're uh, one that wants to fight for the truth, then I commend you and I thank you, and we should, because the next question you're going to ask, you say, well, how do we know that it honors Jesus Christ? You know, there's a whole bunch of ministries that slap the name Jesus just onto anything. You know, there's, there's cults that do that. There's all kinds of people that throw around the name of Jesus as like an addendum to their you know, their, their prosperity, you know, message. You know, where, how do we know that the, the, the name of Christ is truly being exalted? How do we know? And I want to give you three criteria to look at, to examine, does this ministry, does this Christian, does this church truly exalt and honor Jesus Christ? So here's your three subpoints. The main point, the way you know you should affirm a ministry is because it honors and exalts Jesus Christ. And here's our three subpoints. The first will have to do with the person of Christ. Second will have to do with the work of Christ. And third will have to do with the supremacy of Christ. First, a ministry honors Jesus if it believes the truth about who Jesus is. 
A ministry exalts Jesus if it understands the truth about who He is. What is His identity? Who He actually is. There are many groups of people who call themselves Christians who get the identity of Jesus wrong. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Your Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God who has two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. The fundamental identity that Jesus is the Son of God. He is fully God. He is also fully man. And that He is part of the triune Godhead. If we get that wrong, we dishonor Jesus because we are not acknowledging Him for who He truly is. There are some groups of people who have said that Jesus was um, God but not man. This is more common in the early church. They called him the docetists. They, they believe that, that God came in Jesus, but he never really became a man. He kind of floated around. He appeared to be Jesus, floating around. He didn't really just float around. He appeared to be a man. He, he, he looked like a man, but he wasn't actually a man. Uh, that, that was an ancient heresy that was rebutted by the early church. What's more common today is the belief that Jesus was man, is man, but he is not divine. That's a more common error. There are many groups that would deny the divinity of Christ. There are several groups around that are dishonoring Jesus by saying that Jesus is not divine. Mormons deny that Jesus is the unique Son of God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus is divine. Just like the ancient Arians in the early church, they believe that Jesus was a great but he was a created being. The Bible does not say that's true. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, but not the true Son of God, fully man and fully God. So there are groups that get the identity of Jesus wrong. And because they got the identity of Jesus wrong, we cannot affirm them as legitimate churches, as legitimate ministries, because they're promoting uh, what's not true about Jesus. So that's the person. You've got to get the person of Christ right. Secondly, you've got to get the work of Christ right. What did Jesus actually do? And there are certain groups that misunderstand His work. And so we've got to make sure that the work of Christ is clear. Uh, there are some groups that affirm what we just said about the person of Christ. They affirm that Jesus is divine. They affirm that Jesus is uh, also human, fully God, fully man. They affirm that. They affirm that he's the second person of the Trinity. They affirm that. Uh, but what they get wrong is the work of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. See, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus died a substitutionary death on the cross in the place of everyone who trusts in him, making full payment for their sins. And then he rose from the dead. He vindicated his claims. He satisfied the righteous wrath of God. And he forgives everyone who repents and trusts in Jesus Christ. And that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are, the Bible calls, justified. That is to say that they are declared righteous by faith alone, apart from any works. You following? So you trust Jesus, you are justified by faith apart from any works. Now there are some groups that come along and say, no, we are justified by the work of Christ, but also our work as well. We're saved by the righteousness of Christ, but also our own righteousness. Historically, 
You might think, I thought this was a message on unity. Why are we calling out all these other groups? Well, we got to be clear on what is the gospel. Okay? We got to be clear on what historically Orthodox Christians have always believed and what the Bible teaches. Historically, Protestants have separated from Roman Catholics over this issue. Okay? Over this issue. Because a Roman Catholic will agree that Jesus is the Son of God, a Roman Catholic will agree that he is fully man. And they will agree, those, uh, the identity of Christ, they will agree with us. But why are we Protestant? Why did the Protestant Reformation occur? It was because the work of Christ was being misunderstood and wrongly taught. In other words, the Roman Catholic message uh, misunderstood the finished work of Christ. They believed, and they believe, that justification will not be based on the imputed righteousness of Christ, but rather on the accumulated righteousness of the believer. So if we accumulate enough righteousness in this life, that on judgment day we may be able to stand before God and receive heaven as a gift, but if not, then maybe we won't quite make it. And, and listen to this, just the, 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 the Roman Catholic Documents themselves teach this, and I'll just read you a few to, so you can see the distinction. We've got to make distinctions to understand the gospel. The Council of Trent, the section on the canons of justification, canon number nine, and I quote, this is a Roman Catholic teaching. It says this, If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, let him be anathema. It's very clear that the Roman Catholic traditional teaching of the church is that if you believe justification by faith alone, you are accursed. That's what anathema means. So we, as Protestants, go, no, 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 no. We believe that a person is justified by faith alone. That the moment you, in faith, look to Christ, turning from every other hope, by faith you grab hold of Him, He transfers to you His perfect righteousness, and based on the perfect righteousness you now have, God declares you to be righteous. He declares you to be innocent. He justifies you forever. Listen, just real quick, if you are not yet saved, this is the glory of the gospel, that you can rest your head on the pillow tonight with the assurance of salvation. By faith alone, you trust in Christ and you can know you're going to go to heaven right then, right there when it's true faith. That you won't have to suffer thousands upon thousands of years in hell, or sorry, purgatory, to pay for your own sins, even after you've tried to trust in Christ, because Christ has paid it all, all of it. And that's the message of the Protestant gospel, the message of Christ, the message of Paul, the message of the Bible, that you, by faith alone, turning from all else, can trust in Jesus and know, know and have certainty that you are forgiven of all your sins and that you are justified. The, the, the Roman Catholic Church isn't teaching this. Handbook for Today's Catholic, page 47. Listen to this. An outright denial of the sufficiency of the atonement of Christ says this. If you die in the love of God, but possess any stains of sin, such stains are cleansed away in a purifying process called purgatory. These stains of sin are primarily the temporal punishment due to venial or mortal sins already forgiven, but for which sufficient penance was not done during your lifetime. What does that mean? The cross wasn't enough. You've got to pay for your own sins. You've got to pay for your own sins. If you don't pay for them in this life, you've got to pay for them in the next life. And so what does that mean? It's a ministry that is not getting the work of Christ right. 
the work of Christ that is finished. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? In Greek, tetelestai. One word. In English, it is finished. You trust in Jesus. The work is done. Forgiveness of sins is yours. Adoption is complete. You are justified forever. That is the Protestant gospel that we celebrate, that we sing about, that we glory in. And we are not here trying to earn our way into heaven or earn our way out of purgatory by paying penance for our own sins. If you trust in the gospel, you don't have to pay a penny for your sins because Christ already has in full. And so God looks upon you as a beloved son or a beloved daughter, and there's no more stain that you have on yourself. You are cleansed. So how do we know a legitimate ministry that is honoring Jesus Christ? Well, one, they got to get the identity of Christ right. Two, they got to get the work of Christ right. And here's number three. They got to embrace his supremacy. And the way you know a ministry embraces the supremacy of Christ is how it handles his word. How does it handle his word? The first way you know that a person or a ministry or a church or an organization or whatever is not acknowledging the supremacy of Christ is this. Does it acknowledge the infallible and errant and authoritative and sufficient word that he has given us? That's how you know. Does it honor the truth? If you are denying the word of God, how can you say you love the son of God? How can you say you follow him if this is his word to us? And so there are some ministries, some churches that that make much of everything else. They make much of the pastor, they make much of the ministry, or they make much of the miracles, or even in in these days, the, the brand and the real identity of Jesus is obscured. The message of his work is buried and the supremacy of Jesus is not on display. He's kind of added on to the end. So what does Jesus want? Let's go back to our text. What does Jesus want? He wants to affirm a man who is exalting him by doing work in his name. He wants his disciples to be able to affirm this ministry that is exalting Jesus. It is demonstrating his power and authority. The ministry is done in his name. And he wants them to be able to look at that and not want to stop it, but want to celebrate it and to affirm it. And church, I think this is what Jesus wants of us. He wants us to be able to look at churches, Christians, ministries, organizations that uphold the value and worth of the gospel and the identity of Jesus Christ. And we can support and pray for and affirm and get behind those ministries that understand his person, his work and his supremacy. There's a second point. Our third point is this. Two reasons why we should affirm Christ exalting ministries. Two reasons why we should affirm Christ-exalting ministries. Look at verse 40. Reason number one, he says, for the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus is making a really important point here. The, the one who's not against us, that is the, the one who doesn't proclaim a false gospel, the one who doesn't proclaim a false Jesus, the one who's not minimizing Christ, he's, that person's not against us. Uh, that person's for us. That ministry is for us. This is a profound point that we really need to work out in our own thinking, that there are other Christians that we don't know, that maybe don't even come to our church, that are in other churches around us, that these ministries and churches and organizations do 
exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. They understand who He truly was. They understand what He actually did. They recognize His authority and supremacy. Those types of people, what does Jesus say about them? They are actually for us. You see those two words? For us. They are for us. Any church, Christian, organization, ministry that exalts the Lord Jesus in the ways we just described is on our team. They are doing the same work that we are doing for the same God that we serve, for the same purposes that we're aiming for. And this is something that's very important for us. It's very applicable to us. There are other Christians and churches that are teaching from the same Bible. They're teaching the same Jesus. They're teaching the same gospel. They're doing effective ministry. And this is what, the gospel, or this is what Jesus is teaching, that these churches are for us. They're, they're benefiting our same mission. The first point that I want us to, to see here is that the reason why we should affirm Christ-exalting ministries is because it benefits our cause. What is our cause? Our cause is to exist for the glory of God, to make disciples for the glory of God. And other churches and people who are doing the same thing, what do we do? We affirm them. They're on our team. Isn't it a shame? Isn't it a shame when other churches are acting like businesses fighting over market share? It's like, it's like uh, McDonald's and, and Burger King. Like trying to f- you know, promote your own burger by putting the other burgers down. Like ours is flame broiled. And, and they still put theirs in the microwave. Like we're fighting over all the burger eaters in the, uh, in the community. And, and that's, how, that's how you would expect a business to work, right? Because you've got to get part of the market share if you want to succeed in business. And isn't it sad and pathetic when churches are acting like that? As if the community is, is the, the prize to be won and all the churches are fighting each other to try to win the prize or win the market share or get more people. Like we're all in competition with each other. That is a pathetic way for the church of Christ to live. And I think that's what Jesus prayed against in John 17. That there is a genuine unity we should experience with other Christians that know the gospel and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. We are literally on the same team. We are doing the same mission. And shame on any church that is in competition with other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Christ-exalting churches. We should not be in competition. So to illustrate this point, Jesus is saying these people are not uh, against us. They're for us. And and can you think of other Christians who are not here this morning, who are not part of our church, not part of our fellowship, who you have been blessed by? Other churches and other ministries that you have grown under? There are, there are countless number of churches doing the work of God. I just can think of a few off the top of my head. I wrote down Grace Church of Simi Valley uh, sent a team out here, invested thousands of dollars to help Grace Rancho become revitalized. Grace Fellowship of Alta Loma to receive these members into the family and to participate in the work of revitalization here just three years ago. Grace Church of Orange sending people and money to help this happen. The Way Bible Fellowship coming alongside, strengthening believers, and joining us in the mission. Several churches doing the work of God for the glory of God, with the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, now have all contributed to the purpose here to glorify God and to make disciples. And there are countless other churches that maybe some of you have come from that you've benefited under immensely. And we praise God for them. Amen and amen for supporting those churches because God is working through them And so I've had the privilege over the last several years of being out here 
of trying to get other get to know other pastors. And guess what? I'm so thankful for the fact that there are other churches in Rancho Cucamonga, Upland, Fontana, around here that are preaching the word, that are glorifying Jesus Christ, that are aiming to make disciples. Just a few weeks ago, I had lunch with Morgan Maitland from Summit Bible Church in Fontana. I couldn't be more thrilled about what he's doing there. I'm so thankful for the work that he's doing to preach the word there, to make disciples, very like-minded. Michael Lug over at Foothill Bible Church in Upland. Travis Cunningham at Story Church. Dan Franklin at Life Bible Fellowship. Now listen, I don't agree with them on every last jot and tittle of theology related to the Christian life, but what I can affirm is that they stand up on Sundays, they preach the word of God, they exposit the scriptures, and they tell others the good news of salvation. And I can get behind that. And any time Jesus is being exalted and glorified and lifted up and it's clear and it's not being done as a show to just try to attract people to some sort of game that's happening, I get behind that. I celebrate that and I want us as a church to be that kind of church that celebrates the work of other Christians and other churches that are exalting Jesus Christ. Now maybe if you're a truth person, you might be saying, okay, Eric, well, what about the churches you legitimately disagree with? Well, if they're preaching, as I described earlier, Jesus in his fullness, his person, his work, and his supremacy, and I disagree with them on secondary issues like who should be baptized, I can affirm them in their preaching of the gospel. And I can celebrate that work, even if I couldn't attend that church. R.C. Sproul, for example. Man's in glory, benefited from him greatly. I couldn't be a member of his church. Many of you couldn't either. Because if we had a baby, he'd try to baptize that baby, and I wouldn't let him. (laughs) But you know what? When I get to heaven, I'm going to give him a big hug for writing the holiness of God. That changed my life and many of yours. And I could go down the list of people that would be different from some secondary issues, but they exalt the Lord Jesus Christ They make clear the gospel. They stand on the authority of word. And we affirm that. We affirm that. We celebrate that. We support that. And that is the critical issue. Do you exalt the Lord Jesus Christ? His person, His work, His supremacy. Now, don't hear me saying that secondary issues don't matter. They do. That is why there are a proliferation of churches and denominations. But being in a different church doesn't mean you can't support them doesn't mean you don't affirm them. doesn't mean you think they're not Christians. It just means that you have different convictions about secondary issues. And if you want to talk about how we you know, navigate second, third, you know, fourth tier issues, we can have that conversation later. It is a really good conversation to have. By the way, you noticed most Sundays we're praying for different churches from the pulpit by name. We want to pray for Summit and Foothill. We want to ask the Lord to bless their ministries. We want the gospel to go out and for them to be extremely fruitful. Here's a test of our our own humility in this. And make sure we have the right mindset. Let me ask you. This this question was posed to me and it's been one I have to come back to often to, to kind of check my heart. Imagine you're praying for revival. I hope some of you are. You're praying for revival. That the Lord would just do a mighty work and save many people. There'd be lots of conversions. And you've been praying for revival for years. And no revival has come. Until one year, the revival comes like lightning from heaven. 
God is doing a mighty work. Many are getting saved. Baptisms every weekend. But it's at the church on the other side of town. Not at your own. Could you celebrate that? Could you get behind that one? I hope to develop a kind of unity with other believers that are upholding the person and work of Jesus Christ that we can celebrate that kind of work. Why? Because it's literally for the same purpose as our own church exists, to glorify Jesus Christ, to make disciples. This is why we pray for them. This is why we affirm them, celebrate the good work and the good fruit that comes from their ministries. Now here's our second good reason to support them. This is where we're going to close. Verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This might come off to you immediately. It's a little bit confusing, but once you see how it ties into the whole theme here, it's actually a profound reality he's pointing at. Notice that word whoever. He's saying that Jesus doesn't only value the work of his apostles, the work of these disciples. He's saying whoever. Whoever in genuine love for Christ, serves someone else else in his name, not even the big things like demons being cast out or you know big sermons being preached to thousands. He's not talking about that. Even if you just give someone a cup of water in the name of Christ, because you're trying to serve someone, because you love Jesus and you want to bless someone else in his name, you want to support the work of Christ, so you give someone a cup of water. Look at what it says. If you do that, you will by no means lose your reward. You will by no means lose your reward. Here's what Jesus is saying, is that that matters to God. Ministry that is obscure, that no one sees, that is not recognized, that is not local, anywhere, anytime, Any believer offers service to any other believer for Christ's glory. It could be handing a cup of water to someone else. As small as that, when that is done, God sees that. He values that. And He will reward that. And why does He tell that to His disciples? Because the disciples were over here discrediting this guy's ministry. But Jesus wasn't about to discredit His ministry. He was was saying, guys, listen. Even the smallest ministry done genuinely in my name and for my purposes. When that ministry is done, God sees it. God recognizes it and He rewards it. He values it. He values the ministry of those that you don't even know. Let me ask you. Do you know, do you realize that ministries that are not your own really do matter still to God? Even the ministry you don't participate in? God does care about that one? Do you recognize the value in ministries that maybe don't get you all that passionate? Because God does. Can you recognize, encourage, support, affirm ministries that you don't participate in? You might not be in the sound booth, but have you ever encouraged those who do that week in, week out? Or you might not be stacking chairs, but... You ever see and value that work? Or those who are in the nursery that are helping out every week to make sure our kiddos are getting cared for? Do you value those ministries that really are not on your radar? 
Are we able to look at ministries outside of even here and see Christians doing good works and just affirm that and say, God sees that. God recognizes that. God values that. And God will reward that. God rewards all true ministry done to exalt Jesus Christ. All true ministry done to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ should be recognized, affirmed, valued, and encouraged. And so we want to avoid tribalism where we become the only ones who know the truth. We want to be clear with what it means to exalt Jesus Christ. That's why we had to go through some definitions for a little bit. But wherever truly Christ is being exalted, we want to celebrate and affirm and be thankful that Jesus is being proclaimed, that the gospel is going forth, and we want to pray for fruit in those things. We're going to pray, and after we, we pray, we're going to sing, and after singing, we're going to have welcomed some new members into the church family, and we're going to conclude with a baptism, a demonstration that God is at work saving sinners, and we're going to see and visualize the saving work of Christ in baptism. Would you join me in a word of prayer? So, Lord, conform us to your will. Lord, if any of us are so focused on purity that we divide with people we should not divide with, I pray that you'd teach us that you do desire unity in your church and amongst Christians. And if there's any of us that are so willing to promote unity that we don't think about the distinctives, the truths, the doctrinal claims that we have, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the importance of sound doctrine about the person and work and supremacy of Christ. And Lord, that we would be a church that is loving, affirming of all true ministry, encouraging ministry, that we'd rec- we would aim to be like you. you. Lord, you see and you reward and you value even the most obscure ministries done. Let that shape the way we look at other Christians and help us, Lord, to be as you are, valuing all work in your name for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.